You know, I was having a great time at Nike, and um, but I'm always about moving forward and growing and learning. You know, um, I feel like it's time to move on when you have stopped growing. Should we um, uh, get this going? Sure. I could start. So I'm excited about uh, our guest, Jabari Hearn, a big time fan, of course, again, an, a, a pre-Nike guy who's been a veteran for 12 years. He's an ex-collegiate basketball player. Um, again, he started actually his, his journey, his advertising journey uh, at Shine Day. Um, but again, he's one of those leaders um, that I looked up to that, you know, was not just only strategic, but he kind of balanced the art and science of, of listening to the consumer. And he's had his hands on um, one of the biggest launches uh, that Nike's ever done, uh, such as Speed Delivered with Victor Cruz and Jay Cole at the time, to um, me being with him in 2017, uh, a part of the equality campaign towards the All-Star Game in New Orleans. Um, and definitely he's put his stamp within Nike, but then, you know, moving towards the tech side, trying something different from being the director of Google, um, specifically for, uh, the pixel franchise. And then towards that now being the VP of, or vice president of marketing for Lyft. Um, I think it's, it's, it's brought him to that opportunity where it does have tech, but also again, he's able to tell an amazing story through the lens of art. Um, and then even with this whole uh, entire scenario of COVID-19, he's built a, a, a co-owner and program uh, called Monday Night Mentorship for other people to be able to learn from other leaders. So I'm super stoked about uh, being able to speak with Jabari and kind of learn further about his history and, and the questions we'll be able to ask um, when we speak with him. Yeah, me too. It sounds like you had a pretty decent amount of experiences working with him. I had quite a few. Um, and again, just another one of those folks that we were so lucky to work with who is extremely humble um, and just a really great person to be around and a great person to work with. And so I think that, um, yeah, we're going to have a great conversation with him. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited for sure. Jabari. What man. Up? <laughs> what up, what up, what up? How oh, are you, man. sir? Doing amazingly, man. Good to hear from you guys. I miss y'all. Sure. Oh man, same man. It's uh, I, I feel like you're a superstar now, man. Your name's popping up everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't 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 confuse uh, like your name everywhere for being a superstar. There's a lot of people's names in the news over and over again. But <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> well. Hey, congratulations on uh, board of directors for the Marcus Graham project, man. That's a big Thank one. You. Thank you. Yeah. I've actually been on that board for a long time, for over four years. Um, but we're just sort of, you know, using social media to our advantage. Yeah, for sure. It's it's dope. I, I was looking at researching it, reading it a little bit, and just um, being able to kind of learn more. But the, the group you have is amazing. It's good group of leaders so exciting so good man great diverse group that like varied experience like no ego exactly how you want it yeah for sure <laughs> well thanks for being on um jc and my our, our podcast man um we're we're just starting out but you know we're, we're trying to do some amazing things with amazing people and kind of hear their story and so i'll kind of start off and ask you like um how you started 
in just in general marketing or advertising and then kind of go your go up and talk about Nike and, and Google and, and where you are today? Sure. Yeah. So I'm from Chicago, you know, sweet home, Chicago, Midwest kid, only child um, and grew up during the Michael Jordan era. So if you know anything about Michael Jordan, you probably know a lot about me because <laughs> I tried to model <laughs> myself after everything Michael Jordan. Every poster on my wall was Michael Jordan's. Um, but I also grew up in a small town called Oak Park, which is a western suburb of Chicago um, and was home of Frank Lloyd Wright. So I always grew up with like this creative bent, thinking I was going to design houses and be an architect. But I also was, you know, a big, you know, t bigger than most of the kids in my grade. So I knew that sports was probably, you know, in my future as well. So I uh, was lucky enough to get a basketball scholarship to SMU, full ride scholarship. Um, and I didn't realize when I accepted the scholarship that they didn't have architecture as a program. So I ended up changing my my major to mechanical engineering. And if there's any mechanical engineers out there, you'll know. And if you know me at all, that like that is not for me. You know, I had to sit like by myself at a drafting table and the next person was like 20 feet away. Um, totally against my personality. So I switched that after freshman year to to um, advertising, which I just thought was a, like a great blend of like business, sociology and creativity. Um, and it was the one other major that allowed me to flex some of my creative muscles. So I was in love with it from the beginning. Um, but I didn't know what a future in advertising looked like, to be honest. You know, I knew there were advertising agencies out there, but I wasn't quite sure about marketing and what that looked like. And um, my senior year in school, I was supposed to actually get another year of, um, of basketball because I redshirted my freshman year. And so it wasn't until late my senior year that my basketball coach told me that they was doing something else with my scholarship and he was only required to see me through graduation and I was going to be on my way. And that was around March of my senior year of school. So I was like, oh, my goodness, I don't know what I'm going to do. I hadn't sent out a resume. I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I didn't have a I didn't do an internship. I was like, oh, my goodness, like, this is going to be bad on the last day of um uh, of basketball. I was doing a basketball camp for young kids as well. And one of the kids' dad came up to me and said, hey, I love how you play. You know, you've always been one of my favorite players. My son really loves you. What are you going to do after graduation? And I was like, well, you know, I'm not sure, but I have a degree in advertising. And it just so happened that that man was the president of DDB Needham in Dallas uh, of an ad agency. So uh, I don't know if you call that luck, serendipity. I'm not sure what you call that, but um, I knew that I quickly needed a job. He said, give me, he gave me his card and I called him right away. Um, right when I graduated, went in for an interview and that was my first job out of college, um, which was a traffic manager at DDB Needham Dallas, um, working on things like foot action and foot locker, uh, as a business. And what was awesome about that is I started from the bottom. So I had to learn everything from the bottoms up, you know, and I, and that sort of take, took me into account service and uh, managing the relationship between client and agency. And after about two years doing that and working on foot action, I actually crossed paths with a guy named Jonathan Kood, who was at Widen and Kennedy because we were doing a co-op ad with Nike and Foot Locker. And at that time, the culture was changing like hip hop rap culture was actually becoming urban culture. It was becoming youth culture, popular culture. And there weren't that many people in business, AKA there weren't that many black people. 
that understood how to actually translate that to what was going on in businesses. So um, I became pretty attractive to Widening Kennedy. I had an advertising background, I had sports background, and I knew urban and hip hop culture. So uh, they found me from, I don't even know how they found me. I think it was from Jonathan Cood. And of course, when you get a call from Widen and Kennedy to work on Nike and brand Jordan, again, remember this is the kid from Chicago. I leapt at that, at that chance. <laughs> wow. uh, I think they, they offered me $25,000. I was nothing. There were no black people in Portland. I was working um, at the old Widen and Kennedy building uh, on Dukem in downtown Portland. There was no Pearl District in Portland at that time. There was no black radio station. I was literally in the most foreign place I'd ever been. Um, but the people at Widen and Kennedy like really embraced me. Obviously, it was a sports culture. Um, it was a young, wild, crazy culture. Um, a lot of things I probably can't repeat. <laughs> if you work in that agency, you probably know what I'm talking about and you're anywhere near, you know, my age. Um, but I learned a ton in those, in those times, man. I really learned the power of creativity, the power of storytelling, the power of brand, the power of sport, um, and, and I fell deeper in love with, with Nike. But at that time also, I knew um, I was doing a lot of productions when I was at Widener Kennedy down in LA. And I was falling in love with Los Angeles. I mean, the water, the weather, the palm trees, like, you know, on, a, on an expense account, fancy hotels. Like, I'm like, this is the life I need to live. So quickly transitioned to Shiat Day in, um, in, in LA and was trying to live the LA life. And that was during the dot-com bust. And so right when I got there, um, I was there to work on houseofblues.com and they decided not to launch houseofblues.com and put me on uh, a random account. I was working on a, a brand called Salon Paz, which is an Asian Bengay product that's sold in like Asian grocers. <laughs> so here I am coming from Nike, coming to LA to work on House of Blues, the cool culture brand. And they're like, you know what, you're going to work on Bengay. <laughs> lesson I learned, which is like, I can only, I love advertising, I love marketing, but I can only work on things that I'm passionate about. I can only work on products that I love and care about. And that was a big decision point for me there. And I realized then that that's how I wanted to, uh, if I could live the rest of my career. So ended up leaving there and I took a leap of faith. Um, my, my parents um, loaned me $5,000 and I said, you know what, I want to try acting. And I had gotten an acting coach um, because I was working when I was when I left Widen and Kennedy, I was working with uh, on a play and LL Cool J was the lead in that play. And so I, in that time, I got to meet his his acting coach and signed up for his classes. And over the next two years, um, served as a bouncer at a club, two different clubs, by the way, because I was broke. Uh, I was unemployment and um, I was taking acting classes. I was lucky enough to be on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I had I was a guest star on Buffy, um, four lines, but probably like a half a second on screen. I was a guest star on Spin City with Charlie Sheen before he was crazy um, <laughs> and Heather Locklear, which is a pretty cool scene with them. I was in a Ja Rule music video, like, you know, a music video of a commercial with Kiefer Sutherland, like really cool stuff. But it never like got I never got into the mix where I was on a TV show or I had like sustained income. Um, and there were several times where I literally got laughed out of auditions. So <laughs> I feel like that was the most humbling time of my life where 
you think you're, you know, division one athlete, you're working at these big time agencies, you're making decent money. You think you're the shit, but when you go and become an actor and you can't go anywhere because you have no money and you're in unemployment, you're eating bologna sandwiches. Uh, you have to wear this tight t-shirt cause you're a bouncer and all your friends are partying and you're in the back, like watching the back door. Um, you go to auditions thinking like, Oh, okay. This audition's for a six, five ball head, black guy to play basketball. I'm like, Oh, this is me. And you walk into the audition and there's like 40 other guys that like are 10 times as handsome ripped. You've seen them on TV. They're taller. And you're just like, Oh my goodness. Of course I didn't get any of those roles. And I've just I credit that 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 time for just really bringing me down to earth, humbling me, and helping me see life and the world from a different vantage point. You know, um, during that time, I met the woman of my dreams, um, and I did not want her to be dating a broke actor. So I went back to work and decided to shift into strategy and account planning because I knew that that would get me closer to creative. Worked at a bunch of different um, strategy shops. Um, and landed at Shiat again in San Francisco and working on Adidas. And that's when I got the call from Nike, which was I was really excited about. And I learned when I got that call was a wake up call that um, I knew that how I lived my life before that moment mattered because the person that called me from Nike was the same person who worked in the advertising department when I was at Wyden and Kennedy. And they were, they were like, Jabari Hearn, I remember that name. And I think I like that person. And so they called me in for the interview. Of course, it was the same Jabari. I, I think I know about four other Jabaris now. So um, it was a high, high chance that it was going to be the same Jabari. And uh, knocked it out of the park and got my first role on a um, client side. And that was to be the consumer insights um, strategist working on um, – the new category offense. So when I got to Nike, that was right when Nike was shifting again. It was shifting from a horizontally based company. So think about like footwear, apparel and equipment to a vertically based company, a category offense, they called it, where they aligned against sports like football, baseball, basketball, soccer. And my job was to um, to help them shift and, and really focus on who their consumer was, what their mission, vision, positioning was. And that was what set me off on a 10 year career at Nike. Um, and I got advice early on is just like, learn how this place works, learn how it makes money, learn how it creates value for both customers and shareholders. And so that took me 10 years to see it from all its angles, from a global function to then a global category running men's training um, to then taking on the NFL and focusing in on North America and launching the NFL business. And uh, one of the best, best, I believe, Super Bowl um experiences we've done. And then I decided I wanted to go all the way down and see the company uh, at the city level and beg my boss to send me back to Los Angeles to be the marketing director of all sport categories um, and all functions, but only in the West Coast of the US, uh, focusing in on LA. That was a fun job. Um, got to be in LA and see, you know, be the face of Nike, you know, deal with the mayor and police departments and parks and recs you know, uh, running with people on run clubs, you know, playing in our basketball tournaments at the Drew League, so on and so forth. And you really got to see the impact of brands on people, real people in a city, you know. Um, but at that time, it was 10 years. I loved it. It was the best job of my life. But just like college, I had the best time at college, but I didn't want to stay there for 10 years. So it was time to move on. I did not want to be pigeonholed as the athlete guy. So I looked to see how I could round that out. And that took me to tech. 
and was interviewing at Apple and Google at the same time and fell in love with just the, the down to earth nature of Google, but then the opportunity to be a challenger working on the Google Pixel phone uh, to try to take down Apple and the iPhone. Um, of course, that was uh, futile, of course. It's like asking somebody like divorce from their wife and you know marry me um, or divorce from their husband and marry me, I should say, and which is ridiculous. And that led me to Lyft. And um, I hadn't thought about transportation much until I met John Zimmer, who was the founder of Lyft, uh, co-founder at Lyft. And he just started talking about, you know, the role that transportation plays in our lives. If you look around, most of the world is centered around cars and transportation, right? Streets, um, street signs, street lights, parking, parking garages. Um, imagine if a lot of that space was built for people and not cars. You know, he made me think like, how could your garage be bigger than your bedroom half the time, right? And imagine if you could walk out onto your street and because your car was parked on the on the street and you'd see your neighbors more, maybe you'd see your community more, you know? And that just got me really thinking about the impact we can play. And that's what I've been doing over the last year is really setting the foundation for Lyft. Uh, what is our, who's our consumer mission, vision, positioning? And how are we going to start to lead with our values so that we can um, really disrupt what the category leader Uber has been doing? And that leads me to where we are today with you gentlemen. <laughs> Hopefully that wasn't too long and drawn out. No, it was awesome. <laughs> no, no, it was, it was awesome. And, and um, I just love like everything from your history and how the leader that you are is, you know, being humble, but also empathetic and building a structure and culture within your own team prior to and now um, and doing amazing things to kind of tell that story, uh, you know, for the consumer, but also understand that, you know, you guys are a part of the consumer's lives. That's right. Um, so that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I, th I think it's like, you talk about like your collegiate experience and like, you know, a little bit of sociology. That's obviously a huge part of advertising, it, it, you know, knowing the consumer and, you, you had this really amazing experience where you got to be in advertising, you got to focus on the strategy side. And then, you know, you had this experience where you were on the ground in LA and kind of seeing it like meet the community uh, from a grassroots perspective. Exactly. Um, well, can you talk about how maybe that experience maybe led you to sort of look outside Nike for some new experiences or maybe what was sort of the impetus for you at Nike to kind of think, hey, maybe there's something else out there for me? You know, I was having a great time at Nike, and um, but I'm always about moving forward and growing and learning, you know? Um, I feel like it's time to move on when you have stopped growing and stopped learning, because I feel like there's so much to like learn and grow and experience out there. And so when I got to my 10th year at Nike, um, they asked me to come back and run Nike basketball as a uh, as a senior director on Nike basketball. And while it was like so awesome because I got to finally lead my favorite sport, I had done that exact same role leading men's training, uh, leading North American men's training. So um, I knew I could be good at it, but I didn't know how much more I was going to learn as a leader, as a marketer in that role. So that's when I started looking at, to see where else I can continue to learn and grow. Got it. What, what would you say yours, um, would be your proudest moment at Nike then, Jabari? Since you've had your hands in like so many things. I mean, even luckily for myself being a part of that, that program in, in, in 2017 of the equality campaign. I mean, what, was your, what would you say would be your, um, 
that proud moment for you? Easily, by far, the equality campaign. By far. Yes. By far. Like, <laughs> that was like, I, I'm a big fan of things that have lasting impact, you know? Like, I've done a lot of campaigns, sold a lot of shoes. You know, when I die, no one's going to talk about how many shoes I sold in some random campaign, you know? They're going to talk about what lasting impact, you know, what legacy did you leave? And, you know, that to me was a moment in time for everybody, for the culture, not just for the company. I think when Trayvon got killed um, and we as a group had to go to Nike and say, we need to stand up and say something and do something. This was before it was cool, (laughs) before it was in vogue, before anybody was saying Black Lives Matter. Um, before anybody was making these declarations on social media and putting black, you know, squares on social media, so on and so forth. And so it wasn't as easy to go into Nike and say, we need to stand up and do something, especially at one of our most commercial moments uh, being NBA All-Star. But I really applaud Nike and the people that I work with around that time frame to really be steadfast in in our point of view and push, push, push as hard as we could, knowing that we were taking a big risk on the business but um, realized that we were some part of something much bigger than selling some shoes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I was lucky enough to be there with you yeah. and, and kind of see the the amazing work that was done. But I think beyond the amazing work, I think it was just the message in itself that was really powerful, and the, and the and the community within the New Orleans community to even global being able to showcase the content and, and utilizing the context of of what we were trying to do. Um, was pretty impactful. So exactly. thank you. That was awesome. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you for being a part of it, man. Like you were a major part <laughs> of that. Like we felt like we needed everybody in the company to really make that thing sing, you know, and it was culture, it was sport, it was it was local, you know, New Orleans people, it was art, it was we did yoga. I mean, it was it was a special time. For sure. Just kind of just sticking with Nike for this this moment, like you talk about how they were really forward thinking with that campaign. Um, And then obviously, you know, what's been transpiring over the past, you know, several months and, and Nike's position within that. And then also just being kind of in the line of sight for some critics of, you know, Nike's culture and, you know, Nike's um, diversity within leadership roles. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that? Like just in terms of your own experience and, and sort of being on the ground, you know, at Nike and in Beaverton and your experience and, and how that relates to what you're seeing sort of criticisms of, of Nike and their culture? Yeah, I mean, I think people need to realize that I'm 45 years old, you know, so remember my humble beginnings. When I came from ad agencies, I was one of three or four black people at Wyden and Kennedy when I started. Um, so when I got to Nike, there was like hundreds of black people and a black employee network. I thought it was like Nirvana. I thought this is like awesome. I'm loving this, you know, for other people who came from much more diverse places, they, they were thinking like, where are all the black people? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so my perspective is a little bit different. You know, I felt like the, you know, Nike was probably the most diverse place I'd ever worked on, the most tolerant for people who, you know, didn't have to dress up every day and could wear sneakers and like embrace our own culture and listen to, you know, make, you know, hip hop mixtapes for parties and things like that. Like I felt the most at home at Nike. So, um, but I didn't, but I also know that uh, it wasn't as easy for everybody, you know, 
I had great opportunities to work on great brands and great moments, but I know that my experience wasn't the same for everybody um, at, at Nike, you know? Um, and when I continue to look at the leadership ranks, um, I wasn't getting the shot, you know? I, I, I would likely still be at Nike if I, if I made a vice president um, at my 10 year mark. I asked my boss directly, I said, what is it that, why am I not a VP? What don't I have to make VP? And they said, oh, just wait your chance. It, it's coming, it's coming. And I think that was something that a lot of people listened to um, and it still hasn't come for them. Luckily for me, I didn't listen and I went on to get my own VP. Yeah, and, and kind of to that point, like what kind of advice or what have you viewed from not just Nike, I'll say, but other brands um, that are dealing with that kind of you know, situation. Cause I feel like we always talk about it. You know, I think everybody has, or goes through their own experiences, but at the same time, it's like, it, it's not just one company like Nike. I, I believe all companies go through it, but what are you, what is your perspective on that? You know, I, I've been really focusing in on, on um, taking care of the people that are in your organization. And I believe that the unlock are the more, you know, the manager plus people of color within the organization. Um, and I believe that companies need to take care of them, mentor them, support them as much as possible, and then get them into key roles. Because I believe like you can spend a lot of time trying to like educate somebody on how to not be biased and how to be more tolerant of people that don't look like them. Or you can just hire people that are already that way. It's a lot you know, cheaper <laughs> than training a bunch of people. And then automatically when you put some of these people and you su put support around them and you give them you know, hiring responsibilities, I'm guessing you don't have to ask them to create a diverse slate, you know, in the, in the roles and companies that I've been in where we've had female leaders at Google, for example, we have a female CMO. Um, and the marketing team is over 50 to 60% female. My guess is that having a female CMO has something to do with that. And so I think that if we start to get, you know, more senior leaders in these roles, one, they can get more work done. And two, when you start to get more junior people of color coming in, they actually can see a path for themselves. They see that they have support. They realize that if there is some, um, you know, bias going on, that there's actually somebody at the table um, fighting for them. Without that, I think a lot of companies are just thinking we're going to start a bunch of internship programs. I think it's going to be a leaky bucket. Yeah. Um, Go ahead, no, no go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think that's why, um, as a fan of yours, Jabari, I mean, that's why I feel like you guys started Monday Night Mentorship as well yeah. with, you know, obviously another ex-Nike fellow alum, uh, Julian Duncan. But, like, I think the program in itself is just giving that kind of shining light to everybody of not just, you know, a specific person or gender or color, but it's just for everybody to realize, like, you know, there's support there and, and, and you guys are trying to provide that support. Absolutely, man. When I, when I came up, I thought I was the only one. I literally started to write a, a, a screenplay called The Black Unicorn because I just felt like I was alone. You know, when I came up, there was no LinkedIn or social media. So I really felt alone. But I don't want people to feel alone. I don't want people to go through what I went through. Um, I didn't have when I left Nike, I was a pretty senior executive when I left Nike, a senior uh, senior director when I left. I had no idea how to do my resume. I didn't know how to network, who to network with. Um, I didn't know how to really interview. I didn't know how to negotiate a salary or what to ask for. I didn't know anything. 
And so imagine me when I had a lot of resources, a fairly big network, big jobs, and I didn't know what to do to get to the next step. I realize there are a lot more people out there like me and that need that support. And when you think about the people that are there to support you, they really are paid for by the company. You know, headhunters get paid for by the company and recruiters. HR, they're paid for by the company. DNI are paid for by the company. Uh, you know, executive recruiting, executive coaching, it's all paid for by the company. So who's really on the side of the employee helping you? Nobody is the answer. So that's the service we're providing. Yeah. Jabari, like, there's obviously a lot of work that's wrapped up in this, you know, just sharing your experiences. But again, positioning yourself as an example to people who are within the companies that you've been a part of, uh, people that are working on your teams. Um, and how you're showcasing your approach to leadership. Can you speak to any of like, sort of like your leadership ethos and what kind of drives you in, in, in that area? Totally. Dude, I have this thing, I'm corny. I have like little thing, little marketing things just because they're easy to remember and they're fun to tell. Um, I have a leadership philosophy, I call it, you know, the makings of a dream team. And I, the concept is around one of my favorite teams that I grew up with, uh, basketball teams that I grew up with, Michigan's Fab Five. Are y'all familiar with Michigan's Fab Five? Oh, yeah. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so I call it my Fab Five Cs because I believe that these Cs are the makings of a dream team and the characteristics of the people I want around me and the teams I want to build. And so the first C, and I use, I have a presentation around this, so hopefully you can visualize this. The first C is an image of Curious George, and the C is the word curious. I want to be around people uh, and have a team of people that are curious. They're asking why and why not and what if. Um, I believe that's where innovation comes from. And it's also just you know people that are curious or more interesting and interested. Um, the next C I use, I use an image of the Knights of the Round Table because I believe I want a team that's collaborative I hated at Nike, you know, we used to we used to always debate like, does it start with global and go down to local? Or does it start with local and go up to global? And it's like, life is not a ladder. It's actually a round table. You know, it's a jungle gym, you know, and I want a team that's collaborative and sees themselves as a bit as an integral piece of the pie. But there has to be someone who, you know, is a decision maker in the end of the day. So I think about my leadership team as knights of the round table. But of course, women are invited. Um, my third C, I use an image of Beyonce because I want a team that is creative and sees themselves as creative. Um, I've been with people here in Silicon Valley that says, I'm a marketer, but I'm not creative. And I'm like, well, then you're not a marketer. <laughs> marketers are creative. And just because you can't draw or, or, or copyright, um, you are a problem solver, right? And so part of problem solving or envisioning the future uh, is creative. And I use Beyonce because she's just a badass and she does everything with intention. She does nothing, you know, frivolously. Um, and everything she does, she makes a statement with and does it in bold action. And I believe like, if you're going to do it, especially in marketing and advertising, like do it to add to the world, do it to surprise me, do it to make me feel something. Don't force crap down my throat. And I think a lot of marketing these days is crap. And so I want my team to focus on delivering value. And I believe value is unlocked through creativity. 
Um, the next C for me, um, I use an image of Coach K. And the C is competitive. I want a team that is competitive. I played team sports and I do not like to lose. You can ask anybody who's played me and my wife in taboo or anything <laughs> like that, like cranium. Like we do not play games, like we like to win and we play to win, you know. And in most industries, there's really only one number one, right? Everybody else is losing or, you know, and so I want a team that's competitive. And then my final C, and I think the most important is um, consistency. And I use an image of Michael Jordan. And um, I believe that I want a team that is known for those things, known for those other C's. If you're not known for it, then it's not part of your culture, right? Which I think is the big C that engulfs all those things. I had a manager early on that was like, Jabari, you do some really great things sometimes. And then you do some stupid stuff. So I'm not quite sure if you're stupid and you get lucky sometimes and get, you know, do some great stuff or if you're really smart and then sometimes you do some stupid stuff. It's like you got to be more consistent in your actions. And so that always stuck with me. And I never want people to wonder the type of person they're dealing with. I want them to be very clear about what they're going to get. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, so with that, the five C's like, in, in your role now with Lyft, uh, how are you guys handling like these certain situations, especially with COVID? I mean, how did you guys handle that? Even with your five C's, you're, you're, you guys are trying to be collaborative, competitive, you know, consistent, you know, innovative um, and, and so forth. But like, how are you guys handling that? How are you guys continuously being supportive, but also kind of creative and consistent in telling a story. Yeah, I mean, we decided early on this year that we were going to lead with a consistent story. And that was uh, us building a brand around our social impact activities out in the world and our values. And so um, the, you know, Lyft is known for action, not for marketing. So what we do is we act and then we tell people on, about what we did and that serves as our marketing. And so when COVID hit, we jumped right into action. We knew that um, frontline workers needed to still get to work. People needed to get to hospitals. People needed to get groceries and and medical supplies. And so we cre we quickly gathered our driver force and created a task force to get um, um, essential things to people and people to essential things. You know, um, and we didn't think about marketing that stuff. We thought about getting it done first, and then it came, the marketing campaign came later. And that wasn't really a marketing campaign. It was just really an extension of what we've always done, which is the brand we created when I got there called Lift Up. So Lyft's mission is to uh, improve people's lives with the world's best transportation. And Lift Up is our program to make sure that that, that world's best transportation is accessible to all people. And that's what we've really been focused on. And there's no better way to like launch that, that campaign with, with what's going on right now. For sure. I just, this is kind of a weird take, but I just, am, you know, you've been the comment about how there's a lot of marketing out there that is just not good. And with the last year, marketing is like incredibly difficult, right? Um, yeah nobody really wants to hear what brands have to say unless it's something along the lines of what you're doing to help. And mm -hmm. obviously you guys are positioned in that zone. Um, and we don't obviously know what's going to happen in the next three, six to a year, you know, um, like what do you think about the future of marketing just in terms of like everything that's happened 
because of the pandemic and, and, and how, you know, we're just going to move forward and evolve around a new type of, of communication around what companies are doing. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the new face of marketing, we were already headed that way anyway. And that's just like authenticity and transparency because now what's a part of your brand is how you act, behave and look inside your company. So it's not just that you can't just sort of be some random company and then put out a commercial that makes you look like something else. Uh, it's they, they have to be one-to-one -one. who you are internally and who you are externally are the same thing. And that to me is the future of marketing. I actually just, um, I saw that, I think it's the CMO at Twitter is also the head of HR, oh, wow. which I thought was awesome because I believe that, you know, when you're doing HR and recruiting, you're recruiting people to like come to your brand, which is marketing. You're trying to make sure your, um, your consumer or your, uh, employee base is happy and getting served. That's marketing. So I can see the really connection between marketing and HR and D&I. And I believe that those things are going to become much closer together uh, in the future. Yeah. And with a follow-up question to that, to that with marketing, like I want to speak about leadership. I think you're one of the few that obviously get it, but like I've realized and, and kind of done some research and studies that a lot of the leadership's in other brands, I, I mean, I'm not going to call out who, but I've noticed that <laughs> that um, you know uh, the the leadership is just really stale. It's it's like I feel like they're utilizing what they know and what's always been working for them specifically as a short term fix versus the long longevity of the brand, right? And so I'd love your perspective on where you see this newer generation that's coming up, uh, like yourself and others. Um, bringing kind of this, it's not like anything new, but it's just being genuine, being empathetic, kind of being this new leader towards for a brand to really uplift internal and external. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, and I'm being stereo stereotypical, but I think that there, the old way of leadership is to make money. That's impact, right? And so your yeah. job is to make impact for the company, but that's usually translated as as money. I think there are a bunch of leaders out there to, that think that impact is on the team. And then therefore, when you can make a team that is, you know, like the Fab Five C's I've talked about, and you inspire a team, then that team can do anything, which of course then leads to business. And yeah. so I think, you know, you have to have faith in that approach, right? And you have to have faith in people uh, in order to take that approach. And I don't think that everybody has faith in people. You know, a lot of people just have faith in themselves and the dollar. And you're starting to see cracks in that approach, you know, and more people actually try to find, you know, not just a boss, but a mentor, you know, not yeah. just someone to tell them what to do, but to inspire them to do something new. And that's the approach I'm going to take. And that's not for everybody. I'm not getting my, my phone's not ringing off the hook. But for when it does ring, I know it's for people who want that kind of leadership. For sure. I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah. So. so Jabari, like if you, you've obviously learned a lot over your career and you've taken these different, you know, these different experiences throughout your career and it created who you are today. And you talked about, you know, early on, you, you know, you were humble. We kind of like, we've been asking people that we've been talking to, if you could go back and give your younger self some advice, 
things that you've gathered in, in your experiences, what would that advice be? Man, if I had younger, if I had advice for the younger me, one, it would be you are not alone. Um, and reach out to, to the other other yous uh, and, and really grow your network. I'm kind of a loner. So I was always sort of like on my own, you know, so I wish I extended my network earlier on. I'm really seeing the power of that now as I extend out to the people that I know and have worked with. Um, the other thing would just be like is to continuously remind myself. I wish I had this tattooed on myself early that my value is within. And that nobody else can can determine my value, not the person who's giving me my rating not the person who's telling who's hiring me for whatever level I'm in, not what company I'm at, not who I'm married to, not what kind of shoes I none of that. Your value is within. And I wish I spent more time searching within than searching with outside of me. Awesome. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also let's I, I love the question like when we have these young up and comers hungry to be, you know, the next Jabari Hearn or, you know, even try to move up in a company or try to even get into Nike. What kind of advice would you give them? Like, yeah, you know, I would, I think, I think it'd be good for them to hear. No doubt. <laughs> for sure. You got, I, I always say like, you got to come with something to the table. I remember um, you got to bring something to the table. I remember interviewing people at Nike. They used to be like, I love Nike. I have all these Nike shoes. And I'd be like, so does everyone. <laughs> does that, does that means I should hire you? Like, you kidding me? Like, you love Nike? Like, so, like, for me, like, when people are bringing something to the table, like, I tell people now, kill your, your best marketing is, like, you doing an amazing job in your current role, whatever that is, whatever that is. And it's harder the younger you are. Um, I also just learned through all this mentorship stuff that the more that I give, the more I receive. When I wasn't giving, I was feeling empty. Now that I'm giving most of my time and energy to others, I get filled up. I actually get something from it. And so I realized, and I, and I was actually a great a vision of mine. I was like, imagine if everybody gave. By default, if everybody gave, everybody would receive. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. As opposed to everybody trying to receive, then nobody really receives. <laughs> that's, that's facts. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've even realized that myself. Um, just the more you give of yourself, it's like, it's rewarding, number one, but number two, you kind of learn more about yourself and, and, and others. And, and so I'm a big believer of you know, selflessness and, and being humbled, like you said. Um, so I couldn't agree more. Right on. Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, I think that just like the, with the year that it has been, um, what it has, and I think that the Monday Night Mentorship, you know, thing is so amazing. And so just, you know, again, thank you for bringing that to the table. And um and just providing that platform and voice for people. Um, and it's just super inspiring. And I think, you know, for me and, and John, as we're like kind of talking about getting this thing together, like seeing that kind of thing was, ins it was inspiring to us and kind of gave us the impetus to start doing something like this podcast just to talking to people and, and hoping that, that by 
you know, having people listen to it and, and hearing about these stories and experiences would have a positive impact. And I think, you know, everything that we've been talking about in this conversation is definitely leading to that. So thank you. That's amazing. Thank you guys for the platform and, and giving me a voice. You know, I think that um, if people are going to get something from it, then thank you guys for actually pulling it together. So. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a shout out. Go on LinkedIn, learn more about Monday night mentorship, man. It's a good one for sure. So. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you guys. Yeah. Man. And, uh, I can't wait to see where you guys take this podcast and who's on next. I'll be following. All right, man. I appreciate it. Thank All you, right. Jabari. Thank you. Thanks, Jabari. Be good. All right. You too. All right.